In the middle of the 17th century, Athanasius Kircher was one of Europe's most successful scholars. He published Egyptian Oedipus, a magisterial three-volume folio on Egyptology that presented Latin translations of hieroglyphic inscriptions. The three-tome folio of ornate illustrations and diagrams was the product of more than two decades of toil. It sourced Arabic, Aramaic, Coptic, Ethiopian, Greek, Latin, Oriental, and Samaritan texts. Kircher had illustrated mummies, sarcophagi, canopic jars, sphinxes, as well as almost every hieroglyphic inscription known to Europeans. He translated them character by character into Latin prose. It was wholly and utterly mistaken. In the late 19th century, William F. Warren was one of the outstanding figures of education, noted his 1929 New York Times obituary. He was a charter member of both the New England Conservatory of Music and Wellesley College. He spent 45 years at Boston University, including three decades as president, during which a number of progressive firsts occurred, such as America's very first female PhD. He authored eight books, including Paradise Found, in which, drawing upon his knowledge of the great epic folklore of the Hindus, the Celts, the Chinese, the Persians, and footnoting in French, German, and Greek, he arrived at the inevitable conclusion that the Garden of Eden was located at the North Pole. Are we in the early 21st century, free of such erroneous scholarship, was then a superstitious past and now a scientific present. If our scholarly leaders were presented with evidence, if they had inside information, if they were imbued with power to compel actors to share data, would they goal-seek a result like Kircher and Warren? In part one of episode 40, Jeff Snyder reads through the official Federal Reserve emails covering the final 90-some days of Lehman Brothers' existence. It turns out that today's scholars are human as well. Did you know that Ben Bernanke received word that Lehman Brothers, quote, can't survive? The question is when and how they go out of business, not whether months before the bank actually went out of business. My name is Emil Kalinowski. This is Making Sense. It's a Eurodollar University production, and I am joined by the esteemed, the incomparable, Jeff Snyder, Head of Global Research for Alhambra Investments. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Emil. Back to Lehman Brothers, I take it. Yes, let's travel back through time. It is June 13th, 2008. Only 94 days remain before the bank will file for bankruptcy. It's been in business for 160 years. Here's the news of the day, by the way, Jeff. Let's see, so from the Wall Street Journal, the Bank of Japan defends decision to hold rates steady. People may be thinking, <laughs> yeah, they should be cutting. No. no, that means the BOJ effectively remains neutral on policy, even as central bank governors in US and Europe have sharpened their anti-inflation Rhetoric, that was the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, the ECB calls for better access to sensitive bank data. Interesting. Back to the Wall Street German. Lehman bonds find stability. Okay, okay, good. Wall Street Journal, the banking sector leads rebound in U.S. stocks. U.S. stocks recoup most of the previous session's heavy losses, boosted Thursday by encouraging developments in the financial sector. Treasury prices fell as consumers continue to buy. These are all headlines in the Wall Street Journal because the Federal Reserve is believed to move to raise interest rates to combat inflation. New York Times, BlackRock puts money behind Lehman. Uh, they're optimistic about the firm's prospects. Last story, New York Times, dollar on the cusp of the biggest gain in three years. There was other news, Jeff, that day that was private and it arrived in Ben Bernanke's mailbox. What was it, Jeff? 
Yeah, it was a it was an email from Donald Cohn, the vice chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, who basically, as you said, you've already you've already given us the spoiler to the audience that, hey, you know, all this good stuff that's supposedly going on. Lehman Brothers raised six billion dollars in equity, and that's we're you know Hank Paulson's in Japan talking about how great this is that banks have learned their lesson, they're fortifying their balance sheet, and everything's good, except uh, Donald Cohn told Bernanke that one of these hedge fund types in Cape Cod had told him that. Is pretty much common knowledge and across all of Wall Street that Lehman was finished. The question was whether, how, and what. What, what were the details of its bankruptcy going to be? Remember, this is June two thousand eight. June two thousand eight. As you pointed out with your headline survey, there, what we were being told at that time was not what was being emailed between Ben Bernanke and Donald Cohn. It was actually the opposite. I'm glad you brought up the Bank of Japan because that was one one way that we saw that. What were central bankers thinking around the rest of the world? They had this under control. At least they thought they did. I mean, inflation was going to be the bigger problem. The ECB, remember, had raised rates just a month before. And yet, internally, at least in the U.S. part of the system, they were thinking, holy crap, we've got a huge, huge problem on our hands. Three months after Bear Stearns, Lehman doesn't look like it's going to be able to make it. And not only that, I think one of the things that you also raised in one of your headlines was maybe we need the rest of the world to have more access into what's actually going on in this in these situations. Officials and policymakers have all of the information at their fingertips. They have insider sources, bank reports, bank examiners, rules, and, and all sorts of power at their fingertips. Yet, as we're going to see here, even with all that information, they don't seem to be able to understand what it is they're looking at. Exactly. That might be the key takeaway from this episode, which I'll ask you at the end of this part. What is the key takeaway? But that might be it. And it echoes what we discussed in episode 39. This, by the way, is episode 40. Episode 39, part one, where we discuss regulators' access to private data. And here we go. They've got inside information, not just this kind of email about rumors, right? You know, hearsay, rumors that Lehman's not going to make it, but we had data, right? And there was somebody at the Federal Reserve that had access to a liquidity report that Lehman put together that was about the repo market, which we didn't know about. I didn't know about at the time. Of course, it turns out to be very important. What was in that table, that liquidity table, yeah, and it's not, let's, let's be clear here. It's not just that we didn't have access to the information at the time. These are emails that were taken from exhibits and evidence gathered during the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission's inquiry, supposedly into what caused the 2008 crisis. And these were these exhibits, these emails and these other tables and, and data were kept under lock and key, hidden away for years afterwards. I believe these this, this particular batch of emails hadn't been released until I think 2015 or 2016 just going off the top of my head. So for years after the crisis, this stuff was hidden. And so when you go back and look at it and you start to put the piece together what really happened, it, you can sense that, you know, first of all, it's not what they said. Second of all, what they said in public was all, all total horseshit, pardon my French. And furthermore, you know, they didn't, as much information as they had at their finger, they didn't know what they were looking at. They had no idea what was going on, what was really going on, but they did know that it was really serious. And so the email or the uh, table that I, I talk about in the article in particular came from Lehman Brothers. It was a highly confidential internal memo that was circulated among Lehman Brothers senior staff that looked at their liquidity profile at the end of their second quarter in 2008, which was a week before the $6 billion equity uh, drama unfolded. And so in early June, they said, look, we've got, we've got repo, uh, Repo, our repo book outstanding was something like 188 billion, mm -hmm. and that was down from 231 billion at the close of the first quarter. And that sounds like it's making progress, right? We're, we're, as it's been told in the year since, oh, we're, we're shrinking our repo book. We're, we're, we're reducing our dependence in short-term markets. When that wasn't the case at all, when you lose almost 50 billion in repo funding, that means a scramble from, for liquidity. And one of the reasons why was, in, as this uh, liquidity report showed, of that $188 billion that was in the repo book, $105 billion of it was what they called non-traditional collateral types. And these are not necessarily subprime mortgages, but there's ABS, there's also like all kinds of securitizations that aren't U.S. treasuries, that aren't gov government agency uh, collateral. 
So Lehman Brothers, as a Lehman, as a, a bond house, as it was called in one of the emails, had been heavy into the securitization business, which was basically standard practice over the, the uh, subsequent couple decades before then. And what they did was they packaged loans together and made security, made bonds out of them. They literally conjured bonds out of illiquid loans. That's, that was their entire business. Except if, if these bonds that you conjure out of illiquid loans are rejected by the repo market, you've got a major problem on your hands because you don't have collateral to, to stay funded and liquid. And so now let's move forward. The, the Fed had this information. Let's move forward about a month to July 10th. Now there's only 67 days remaining in Lehman Brothers' life. And Carl Mocharko delivered some bad news. David Marshall and Kim Taylor said it was good news. Uh, who are these characters in this drama and what was it all about? Well, the first one, the Macharco fellow, was from Federated Investors, which is basically a money market fund manager. And money market funds, if you don't know, are, are heavy players cash side in the repo market. They're always looking to invest cash because that's really what money market is. It's a cash equivalent for investors. And so what he said, on, I believe it was July 10th, 2008, was, look, we're done. We're not going to transact any more repo with Lehman Brothers. And the reason we're not going to transact any more repo with Lehman Brothers was not because of Lehman Brothers. It was because of J.P. Morgan. That's really, you know, the shocking part of all this is that their problem was that J.P. Morgan had been unilaterally rewriting the custodial rules for tri-party repo with Lehman Brothers and a lot of other, other places. And what Macharco said was, look, we can't take it anymore. They keep inserting legal language that has all sorts of repercussions on our end. It we don't care about Lehman. We've got money to invest. And I think they said we have half a billion dollars in non that's ready to go for non-traditional collateral. I mean, they were, they were Lehman's best dream at this point in July 2008. And what they're saying was J.P. Morgan's just made it impossible. We can't do it. And by the way, Federated wasn't the only one that day that pulled out. It was also Dreyfus because what J.P. Morgan was doing, as I said, they weren't just rewriting custodial language with one or two people. They were writing the, uh, rewriting custodial language and updating terms for a whole range of cash investors on the repo side who might be doing business, not just with Lehman, but other banks as well who are posting collateral. So there's, there's a lot going on here. And at the time, the other two people that you mentioned, Emil, they worked at the Federal Reserve in the, uh, I think it was David Marshall from Chicago said, look, I just got an email from this Kim person who says, this is good. This is, this is progress. This is something, this is a positive development. And you have, and again, you know, understanding what's going on, Lehman Brothers is losing repo counterparties when it's already shaky to begin with. And they're doing so because of what JP Morgan's doing. They look at that as a positive because they think this is a non-economic factor. This is something that's not, oh, the market, the market's not pissed off at, or not, you know, it's not moving funds out of Lehman. It's something that has to do with J.P. Morgan. They didn't understand the issue with J.P. Morgan, which was much, much worse than Lehman. I'm, I'm you know, I'm confused. I don't even, there's so many questions to ask. Uh, I guess I don't understand why they were thinking that this was good news, that the repo book was falling. I would think you would want it to be expanding. Okay, fine. And then the whole federated... Emil, well, it's, 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 yeah. it's, like, it's almost like this year in COVID. It's, oh, this is... This is Federated isn't isn't worried that Lehman's shaky. This is this is what the Federal Reserve was thinking. They're pulling repo because of a technical factor. And you but, hear this all the time. I mean, how many times have we heard that over the last thirteen years? There's oh, it's a technical problem. There's a breakdown in funding. It's but then not what about because Dreyfus. Of, same thing because J P Morgan was rewriting custodial rules up and down the entire tripartite repo custodial book. So it didn't just impact Federated, it impacted Dreyfus and all sorts of dealers too. When the Fed was saying was look. We'll knock on J.P. Morgan's door. We'll tell them to knock it off and everything will be magically great, right? Wow. We'll say, hey, look, we're the regulators here. You're disrupting repo for reasons that you don't need to be doing this stuff and everything will just go back to normal. They looked at this the exact wrong way. They thought Lehman Brothers is in trouble, but the market doesn't think so. The market wants to fund Lehman Brothers if only J.P. Morgan would get out of the way. That's why they thought this was a good thing because they thought it was, oh, it's J.P. Morgan doing something else, something, you know, arcane and mundane and legal, not economic, right? It's, it's not that the market hates Lehman and is, is afraid of its insolvency. It's they started believing that J.P. Morgan was just being obstinate. 
It's because they wanted that result. They could have looked at either party and said, well, this party's right or that party's right. But they wanted the end of the story to be Lehman Brothers is okay. And JP Morgan was telling them a message by doing these bizarre, outrageous things to preserve right. their it own Easter. JP Morgan, right? As we said earlier in the earlier email, the Cape Cod hedge fund type told Donald Cohn, look, we know Lehman's finished. And so you put all these, you start putting all these things together. Why is JP Morgan doing this? Right? Why? It's one of well, those that's things. Fine. To, right, yeah. right. Why? What is, well, first of all, what was JP Morgan doing? Well, what they were doing on one of the first things they did is they rewrote the collateralization rules, which basically had always said, look, we're going to margin your, your uh, collateral based upon the repurchase price. And the repurchase price is what Federated gets together with Lehman every day and they say, this is the price of your collateral. And JP Morgan says, I, re I need this much margin uh, from, from Lehman based on the, the repurchase price you guys have come to where it is in relation to the market price, right? That's how repo works in the tripartite setting. If the, if, the, if the market price moves compared to the, re, the repurchase price, then the JP Morgan's gonna say, I need more collateral from Lehman, I need less collateral from Lehman, I need more cash from Federated, all sorts of other things. What they were saying now is, look, we're changing the language from repurchase price to sale price or original purchase or cost book, book value price which is what the, what the security would have been worth when it was put together. Because remember, these are securitized packages and so, you know, mortgage bonds and things like that. So what understanding reading between the lines here, especially in the context of 2008, think about even a prime mortgage bonds price compared to its book value in June 2008 versus what, maybe what it was in 2007 or earlier. It's much lower. So Lehman Brothers is thinking, I'm getting full collateralization and repurchase price at, at the market value. When JP Morgan is saying, no, this bond has fallen materially, we're going to need margin based on the book price. So it's essentially a collateral call and a unilateral collateral call on Lehman Brothers' book, which Federated was saying, look, you're, you're imposing these rules upon, on, upon Lehman. And Lehman's saying, wait a minute, this has nothing to do with you, JP Morgan. This is between us and Federated. Who, what do they care if we're, if we're uh, repoing based on the repurchase price, because as far as Federate is concerned, as long as the repurchase price is close to the market price, we're good, right? Because they can sell it at the market price. Let's step in here then, Jeff, because maybe we should have done this a few minutes ago. Why is JP Morgan even involved if it's a deal between those two? It's because of a tri-party system. Uh, explain to us how this system works. What was JP Morgan's role? And then we'll get into the fact of what, you know, JP Morgan was thinking, why they were doing this. Well, it's, the tripartite repo system is nothing more than a clearinghouse. JP Morgan as a bank acted as a clearinghouse to, to clear, to, to basically take care of all of these trades so that, you know, Federated and Lehman Brothers didn't have to do that between themselves. As most repos done OTC, bilateral, bespoke, that kind of thing. So it's, it's, it's basically JP Morgan saying, I'm going to provide custodial services, matchbook, uh, all sorts of other things, I know, taking care of your collateral, taking care of your cash, settling, unwinding, all of the things that need to do in the, uh, in the repo market on behalf of the collateral side and the cash side. And so JP Morgan isn't just a disinterested clearinghouse though, because as part of its custodial arrangements, it has some uh, legal recourse as well as some legal liabilities. And if these, some of these trades start to go awry, who's on the hook for them? Well, ultimately, that's what J.P. Morgan was saying is, look, we're looking ahead here. Yes, Ben Bernanke and Hank Paulson, everybody says things are going well. But let's not forget, we're the firm that had to absorb Bear Stearns when we didn't want to just a couple months ago. We know what's going on in the repo business, by the way, because a lot of tri-party repo goes, flows through our own book. So we see on the inside what's going on in repo. And looking ahead here, maybe as JP Morgan is nothing more than a custodian, we've got some potential problems to, to look at and prepare for. We've, we can see this repo business as what, as it really is. And it's starting to scare the hell out of us, scare the hell out of us so much that we're unilaterally rewriting custodial language, which are legal documents. Not, not all of them are boilerplate either, but you know, a lot of them are these legal documents, custodial documents are things that have been used in uh, standard practice for decades, and all of a sudden, J.P. Morgan's saying, look, we're going to start unilaterally rewriting changes into both sides of it. And, and it wasn't just, you know, sale price versus repurchase price on collateral. It was also 
split indemnity. And basically, J.P. Morgan said, wrote into the document language, hey, both Federated and Lehman and all these other, but not just those two, but all the other in the repo book, they're going to indemnify J.P. Morgan against any losses from simply taking orders from both sides, which is language that had never, I mean, that kind of blanket indemnification had never been a standard practice. It had never been any practice that I'm aware of. And so you put that together with the, the repurchase thing, uh, with Lehman Brothers specifically, J.P. Morgan said, look, we have the right now to simply repay Federated for any under-collateralized situation and then charge Lehman for the interest of doing so, which is, again, looking ahead and saying, look, if some of this collateral starts to lose value, we get stuck with it. We're, gonna, we're on the hook to Federated. We're going to charge Le We're going to use Lehman's cash to do so. And also, we're going to raise the margin on Lehman while we do it. So again, it's all of these things that are being, that are what JP Morgan is saying, look, this isn't a Lehman Brothers problem. It's a systemic problem that's scaring the hell out of us. And that's, so now we're moving forward to September 13th. And so the iceberg that's going to sink the good ship Lehman is only two to two days away. And it's not over the horizon. It's perfectly clear. It's not underwater. It's coming clear as day. And Christopher Saboy wrote something that day, Jeff, that speaks to what you were just talking about, that it wasn't Lehman. It was the whole repo market. And he went through all the different subsidiaries. Can you uh, tell us what that email, what we should take away from that email? Well, it's the, there's two parts to this. There's the repo market and then what the repo market does. And I think it's, you know, in common perception, it might be that the repo market is a funding market. Well, what the hell does that actually mean? Funding market for what? And it's okay. You have collateral, but as we talked about last week with the non-harmonized global rehypothecation regimes, the idea of collateral itself is kind of, it's tricky. It's, it's intricate. There's, there's more to it there too. And so it really, I mean, on the surface, this repo stuff sounds very, very simple, right? It's a collateralized lending arrangement. You give me collateral, I give you cash. Tomorrow we unwind the trade, and more than likely, we do it all over again. And we do this day after day. And it's really, it's a collateralized lending arrangement that should be really simple, safe, easy, and effective. Except, no, there's all this other stuff behind it. As J.P. Morgan was pointing out to, to the regulators, anybody who would listen, really, this collateral stuff was scaring the hell out of them because not just valuations and such, because it was so widespread and how it was used. They weren't really sure who would get, who would be on the hook for losses or who would be on the hook if some of these trades didn't unwind properly. So there's all that stuff going on in the collateral side. And then the other side of it is what are these repo users doing with all this collateral? What are they funding? Well, they're funding everything. They're funding their entire money dealing activities based in large part on what these re on what, what's going on in their repo book. And so in terms of a company like Lehman Brothers, that meant in other subsidiaries, not the, not the subsidiaries that are doing the repo, but other subsidiaries in Lehman, these other groups, part of Lehman Brothers under the parent umbrella that have massive derivative books that are funded in large part by what these, these subsidiaries that are doing the repo are doing in repo. So you have Lehman Brothers Inc., which was the U.S. subsidiary, which was doing a lot of these securities financing transactions. You have Lehman Brothers International Europe, which we talked about last week, which had all the collateral to do the repo financing. And then you have all of these credit facilities and arrangements that go between the parent and the subsidiaries and all these other places that essentially tie everything together. But what it really ties it to is these two subsidiaries that are in the repo market funding a lot of these marginal activities. So Lehman Brothers derivative books were very much tied to what happened in the uh, what happened with the ability of Lehman Brothers to source funding and repo. And that meant collateral and all these other things. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I have done my best to try to convey the excitement I had when I was reading this article, but I don't think I have. But it read like a thriller. It read as good as any of the movies you have seen about this crisis. And the article, if you wanted to read it, if you wanted to read the different emails, the, the arguments that people were having and, and experience that kind of countdown towards inevitability, then go to Real Clear Markets and you'll see the article posted today, uh, the 18th of December, and it's called Vaccine Euphoria and Inflation Hysteria Obscure, Obscure the Dollar Problem. Jeff, we could go on and on, but 
we should probably wrap it up. Is there anything that I didn't touch on, any fable, the moral of this fable? Is there anything that we didn't convey to the audience? Well, I think, you know, I think we've conveyed it. But the moral, just to sum up again, is that, look, first of all, this money stuff is incredibly complicated. It's, it's really intricate. It's, it's really detailed. It's really involved and complex. Second of all, monetary officials, central bankers, government officials, regulators, they have no idea. They have access to all this information, but they have no idea what they're looking at because they have no frame of reference to interpret it because they're all 60, 70, 80 years behind the times. And so when they confront this situation, like we said before, they say, oh, Lehman Brothers, it's JP Morgan. JP Morgan's just being obstinate. And once we, once we knock on JP Morgan's door, they'll, they'll see the light and everything will go back to normal when they couldn't comprehend what everyone was telling them, that this was not a Lehman Brothers problem. It was a systemic problem. And so that's, that's, that's part of the, the, uh, the real message here is that, look, you know, this isn't just about 2008. Even in 2020, when we have, uh, you know, the breakdown in March, regulars say, oh, we did a really good job because there wasn't another Lehman Brothers, when in fact, look, you know, they don't really know what they're looking at. They have all the information in the world that we can only dream of getting our hands on, especially in real time. It's a, it's, you know, it's a treasure trove five years and six years later, but you know, in real time, they have all the data and they have no idea what to do with it. And the results show us that. And the results, uh, which, is, which are germane to 2020, going into 2021, are deflationary, not inflationary. When they have no idea what's going on in the monetary system, and you have the uh, rest of that monetary system telling you what's going on, whether it's from market prices or, or things like that, you can understand and appreciate why they would make these kinds of big mistakes. One of the central figures of this story is J.P. Morgan. And in part two, we're going to discuss what the bank is up to more recently. But first, this from Eurodollar Enterprises. Friends, are you a central banker? Have you been invited into the home of a member of the financial press to celebrate Christmas or Hanukkah or Ramadan or Panchakanapati or Kwanzaa or Saturnalia or Yalda or Kolyada or Festivus, but have nothing to wear? Then the new line of premium quality bathrobes from Eurodollar Enterprises is for you. Yes, arrived adorned in 800 thread count, plush Egyptian cotton, emanating entitlement and overconfidence with devil-may-care flair. Each robe comes with your initials hand-stitched on the sleeves. And for that added touch of superiority, the logo of a regulated institution and your prospective employer will be emblazoned over the breast pocket. Premium quality bathrobes, new from Eurodollar Enterprises. Jamie Dimon is the head of JP Morgan, one of the most important banks in the world, and he recently opined on the state of the US Treasury market, and he didn't think too highly of it. But JP Morgan itself may be buying US Treasuries hand over fist, the disconnect. We're going to talk about it right now with Jeff Snyder, head of global research for Alhambra Investments. Welcome back to Making Sense, Eurodollar University production. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and I'm looking for my notes. Which page are they on? There they are. Here they are. Okay, Jeff. So in episode 25, we spent 20 minutes discussing uh, American Captain John Paul Stapp, Captain Edward A. Murphy, Englishman William of Ockham. He, that was from the 14th century. And if memory serves me right, we may have mentioned Robert J. Hanlon. But if we didn't, we're going to bring him up now because Hanlon, along with a number of other thinkers and writers, including American psychologist William James from the 18th century, Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, American physicist Richard Feynman. Uh, I think you're just, wrong. you're just throwing out names at this point. No, no. <laughs> Robert Heinlein, American. This is the, the quote I'm going to attribute to all of them. They've all said it over the last couple hundred years, including German Renaissance man Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. Uh, and each one of them has said something along these lines. Well, I don't want to steal the thunder. Do you remember you opened up your article with this quote? Do you remember what it is? Yeah, I didn't know Goethe said it. I mean, we're talking about 
never attribute to malice what is easily explained by stupidity. And I, I think it's a, it's a common razor because, you know, in our lives, we like to believe that mistakes are due to somebody's, you know, somebody's intent. There has to be a reason for it. It can't just be blind stupidity. When in fact, I think a lot of these people, and I think our own experience proves that most often it really is because let's face it, especially uh, given the situations that we find ourselves in with the financial and monetary systems, that there is an awful lot of stupidity to go around. And so what we're trying to say is something that uh, John Kenneth Galbraith said very well in one of these books behind me, The Short History of Financial Euphoria, is that during the boom, during the glory, the people that reach the top, the people that have a lot of money, are assigned too much credit, too much intelligence, too much foresight. And afterwards, in the devastation of the bust, we realize, oh, you know, maybe they were very talented administrators or corporate politicians. Maybe they didn't quite have a handle on what was really happening within the system. And what we're talking about is that that might be the case when on May 7th, 2018, the head of America's most important bank told Bloomberg Television that the American economy was strong, which fans of this show know that was not the case. And then could we also say, but maybe he was just being political, Jeff. And can we also say that when he said the U.S. treasuries are not great, that they're going to be losing value, could we also say that maybe it was a political statement and he has to say that as the head of a bank, of an American bank, or did he really believe that? I have no idea what Jamie Dimon really believes, but I have to. I do know that he's he's basically a trained economist. He is, as you point out, more of a politician than anything. And I think the way you put it just now is is exactly right. When things are going well, you know, was he good at understanding that things are going well, or why, or was he just good at going with the flow? Right. I mean, that's that's that's. I mean, if you look at, uh, for example, a monetary history, Milton Friedman's book. In it, he writes the same thing about the Federal Reserve and his observations. When things are going well, people say, oh, monetary policy is fantastic. It works really great. When things are not going well, people say, well, monetary policy was just up against too much of a problem. And so that doesn't argue that monetary policy is useful. It's What it argues for is what we said at the top is that maybe there's just there's more going on here than simply what meets the eye. And in the case of Jamie Dimon and the U.S. Treasury market, as a, you know, he used to be a member of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York Board of Directors. Was he doing Jay Powell a favor saying, look, I see inflation. I see, I see things going in the right directions. I think the Fed has figured this stuff out. We're talking about 2018 now. You know, we're going to, we're going to see inflation. So that necessarily is going to lead to bond, U.S. Treasury prices falling and bond yields rising because that's what we want. We want Treasury yields to fall or Treasury yields to, to rise and bond prices to fall because that would reflect an actual recovery. And so what Jamie Dimon was trying to say was that, look, treasuries is not the place to be because things are becoming really good. And if we, if anybody at the bond market had actually agreed with him, then that's exactly what would have happened. Yeah, spoiler alert, treasury prices only rose after 2018. But why are we bringing up what he said two and a half years ago, Jeff? That's not fair. Why did you bring this up? Well, first of all, because he's, you know, when we look back at J what JP Morgan was actually doing, especially in 2018 and 2019, as Jamie Dimon was saying, look, the last place you want to be is in the U.S. Treasury market. JP Morgan, the bank the guy runs, was one of the heaviest buyers in the U.S. Treasury market. And so that's where <laughs> you get into Was it, is he being duplicit? I mean, yeah, maybe he's being political, doing Jay Powell a favor. But was he saying, hey, sell me your treasuries at the cheapest price because I'm buying? And that's where you get into this, you know, the stuff about Wall Street and all of the dark, dark, dark tones. And, you know, this is all a conspiracy. And he's, 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 he's doing the opposite of what his bank is doing. He's talking in public and, and trying to get his bank the best, op, you know, best. And it really comes down to maybe he doesn't understand. Maybe he's just a trained economist, as he is. And he looked at the econometric models that Jay Powell does and came to the same conclusions that he did. But those conclusions have absolutely nothing to do with how the bank carries out its day-to-day -day activities. Because let's face it, what is Jamie Dimon's job? It's not to go down on the trading desk and buy and sell treasuries or Fed funds or something like that. He's not writing interest rate swap uh, contracts. 
He's running the bank and he's running the bank as an economist because Jamie Dimon is obviously really good at running a bank. And whether he's really good about what the bank does, that's a separate issue. And I think that's the issue we're talking about now, especially as just recently, Jamie Dimon again said, hey, I wouldn't touch U.S. Treasuries with a 10-foot pole. And so the question immediately comes to my mind is, what is J.P. Morgan, the bank, actually doing? Are they maybe buying treasuries? And so we look at that. You know, It's not what Jamie Dimon says as the CEO. It's what the rest of the bank and the rest of the banking system might be doing regardless of what their CEOs might be saying. And you know what? We can turn to the Federal Reserve to get an idea of what might be happening. And it's a report that they put out. Uh, it's called the Z1 Report, officially known as the Financial Accounts of the United States. And they put out the latest Z1 on December 10th. Coincidentally, the same day that the ECB announced another 500 billion euros in stimulus. And what did we, what is that report tell us? What is it supposed to tell us? And then what did you look into it for? What did you see relative to this question of is JP Morgan actually buying bonds, treasuries? Well, the Z1 report, the Financial Accounts of the United States, used to be called Flow of Funds. And the reason it was called Flow of Funds, and now it's called Financial Reports of the United States, is because it was the Federal Reserve saying, let's examine every last bit of the financial system that we can possibly get our hands on. And so it's really the most comprehensive report on almost every major category of either instrument or player in the, in the securities markets or financial markets, credit markets overall. And so they keep track of really big stuff details about what's going on in the financial system as much as they know or can get their hands on. And so it's, it's, a, it's a pretty exhaustive summation of the financial system and who's doing what inside of it, even if it's not yet complete. Uh, it's not complete com uh, given the uh, global nature of the financial markets. But one of the things it does do exhaustively and comprehensively is look at what the domestic banking system is reporting. Because again, as we've, you know, our theme here this week is they have all sorts of information that only occasionally we get our, we, the public can get its hands on. In this case, through the financial accounts of the United States, we can see if, if you know, it's a couple months delayed, a couple months behind, what the banking system is up to. And so this, so this is episode 40 of this show of the year. And I think looking back, this is going to be the last episode of the year, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, 40 episodes. And I believe I am now going to show a chart from the Z1 report that may be the most important chart that we have shown all year. It's, it was clarifying, Jeff. I'm going to show it, but before I show it to everyone, I'm just going to tell them if they want to follow along, if you're listening to the podcast and you want to read it, it's called Inflation Hysteria Number 2, except there's a Z1 in there. High Z1 Teria Number 2. Anyways, you'll find it on uh, Alhambra Investments blog post. It was posted on December 14th. Jeff, I'm going to show a, a chart now. Is this the most important chart of the year? It could be. <laughs> no, and I think, it, yeah, I think there is a lot to it because what we're looking at here is, again, the U.S. banking system, the domestic banking system, what is it that it has been doing? This year, and of course, the main message across or that most people hear is that inflation, 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 growth, money, money printing out the wazoo, right? Reckless Federal Reserve, and that's in one part that's that's sort of true. At least there's 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 statistics that say the Federal Reserve is expanding what it's doing. Bank reserves have skyrocketed in a, in a way that we've never seen before. And of course, we've never seen bank reserves. It, to any substantial degree before 2008, which is one thing this, this chart shows, is that bank reserves are a relatively recent phenomenon. And yes, they've gone crazy in, 2000, in 2020, but what is the rest of the banking system doing? And what this chart shows, the, 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 the pink area, is that the, all, of the, all of the domestic banking system's assets, excluding the, risk, the riskless assets, including you know, what I'm talking about, U.S. Treasuries, agencies, as well as bank reserves, what are they doing? You see kind of a, the, the little bit of an increase earlier in the year, but since then, banks aren't really doing anything more. Despite the fact that supposedly they have all of this money printing at their disposal, 
they're actually kind of cutting back a little bit. So they're doing the opposite of what you would expect if money printing was having the money printing impact that you were, that's, that's supposed to come from it in the financial system, right? Because flush with all sorts of cash, you would expect banks to go nuts lending, at least, at least doing that, doing something, right? And what the banking system is, as far as risk assets are concerned, they're actually cutting back a little bit. To me, it's amazing, this chart. It goes all the way back to 1953, and you've got it up through 2020. But between 1953 and 2008, pretty much anything that could happen to a country did happen to the United States. There are a few exceptions, okay. But everything that could have probably did. And therefore, we have a trend to go off of. We have recessions, we have booms, we have everything. And if we look at this chart, what you see is a half century or more trend. And then in 2008, you fall off the trend and you see how the Federal Reserve comes in and tries to top it off. You know, they add reserves to the system. But this chart shows completely nothing. The reserves don't compare to where we would have been had we remained on this firmly half century established trend of good and bad. And it shows us just tremendous gap in money creation because that's what it is. You know, these banks, they create money for the global economy to run on. I don't, it, for me, it's, it was a, a simple chart that just shows the vast amount of missing money that we sort of can estimate of where we should be. Yeah, and what is that? What is the difference, right? What is, why is there the previous fifty, the previous half century, the way it is, unbroken, sort of, compared to two thousand post two thousand eight? Well, you don't have a Great Depression in the beginning part of it, right? Mm -hmm. That's really the difference. What has changed over that trend, or what changed the trend? What changed reality was a monetary breakdown, every bit as serious as the Great Depression, even if it didn't lead to the short-run destruction that we saw in 1929, 1930. It did lead to the same kind of permanent shock because that's what monetary breakdowns always do. You know, the depression cycle of the of the previous age, and so. If, from 1950s forward, what we're really talking about as we <laughs> Euro dollar university, this is the Euro dollar era. And so long as the Euro dollar system as a whole globally was functioning, everything seemed to be fine. As you pointed out, Emil, the world experienced every bit of everything that could possibly be thrown at it, the US system included. But yet, as soon as the Euro dollar breaks down in 2007, all all of a sudden, these met, and not just it's not just domestic banking credit. It's all, we see all over the place. Whether it's you know economic data from around the world, U.S. dollar data, anything. The trend always breaks in 2008 because it was a monetary system break. All right. So thanks for humoring me with that little detour because I just love this chart. Let's get back to the J.P. Uh, Diamond story. J.P. Diamond. You know what I'm trying to say. Jamie <laughs> Diamond. J.P. Morgan story. U.S. Treasuries are they garbage? And what are banks actually doing? Uh, beginning of this year, we saw M1, M2, M3, if we have those measures. The OECD has a measure of M3. I know the Fed doesn't calculate it anymore. Anyways, we've seen sharp rises in those measures of money. And you have looked at this data. And what do you believe it was that caused those sharp rises in those measures of money? And then we'll move on to you know, is that good or bad and, and, and so forth? Well, M1 and M2 to me are outdated measures of money, so they can be misleading. In fact, I would argue that they're almost always misleading because they don't show what's happening outside of them. And what's happening outside of them is vastly more important to the condition in the, this monetary system we're talking about. The monetary breakdown you saw in 2008, which, which wrecked pretty much everything, every trend line previous to that, had nothing to do with M1 or M2. It had everything to do with shadow monies. We just talked about collaterals in these uh, very intricate uh, repo spaces globally. So, you know, the rise in M1 and M2, to me, it's okay, that's fine. That's something to look at. But what is going on here, and a lot of what's going on in M1 and M2 is the increase in checkable deposits related to quantitative easing. So banks are creating checkable deposits in order to participate in quantitative easing. So what? You know, it's one of those things that's okay. It's it's transferring assets and liabilities 
between one, one existence to another. It's an asset swap in one sense. And it's a liability swap in another because we don't know what the other side of it is in repo, especially when we talk about treasury auctions, which is what a lot of people focus on, that, you know, in, in before 2008, a lot of treasury auctions would, auctions would be settled in the repo market. It would be settled outside of these monetary aggregates, which is why you never saw bank reserves to begin with. One reason why. And so the fact that M1 or M2 are rising rapidly just simply reflects monetary policy and how the banking system is trying to uh, participate and what Jay Powell and the Federal Reserve is doing. So let's see, between the end of 2019, and this is all in your article, if anyone wants to follow along, between the end of 2019 and the end of September 2020, total assets of domestic banks increased by 2.7 trillion. 1.2 trillion of that was QE, as you said, that leaves about 1.5 trillion. Now, you're saying that the aggregate loan book gained $605 billion, of which $644 billion, let's see all of it, but you know you can do the math. Essentially, all, almost all of it, of this whole loan book, was something called, what, what is that funny name category? Is loans else, not elsewhere classified. What were those, Jeff? That's basically anything else that's not a consumer consumer loan or a mortgage. So in this case, you know, we know it's it's commercial industrial loans, loans to businesses and things like that. And the NEC is really just the way the flow of funds or the you know the Z1 report category you know lumps together what are what would otherwise be you know a, a plethora of small categories. They basically say there's mortgages, there's consumer credit, and there's a bunch of other things. And, the, and a bunch of other things include as I said, commercial industrial loans, which, as we know, absolutely skyrocketed in March and April as companies panicked, terrified that they were going to, that, you know, commercial paper was breaking down, repo was breaking down, they couldn't fund anything. And so they ran to their local banks and drew down these revolving lines of credit. So a huge amount of the, the increase in the loan book had, had to do with uh, companies panicking, not, not because they're investing in real economic uh, programs, but because they had agreement, agreements that were in place before 2020 that they were uh, contractually able to draw against. And I would bet you that in banks, if they had known what was coming, they probably should have, but if they had known what was coming, they would have canceled these revolvers before they were ever drawn down by that much. So it's not like the banks are saying, oh, this money printing stuff is working. We're going to extend loans to businesses because they want to build stuff. They're saying it's the exact opposite, really, because the Fed is completely incompetent, because it allowed March to become a global financial crisis that panicked corporations into drawing down the revolvers. Banks had to oblige those agreements and extend the credit to these corporate customers. So the majority of that loan book growth was then the commercial industrial revolvers. What about that leaves about, let me see, 900 billion ish. If we're going to keep our math straight here, was that 900 billion extended to uh, consumers, mortgages, and credit cards, or the government, or other non-financial corporations? I'm sorry, financial corporations. Where yeah, is that missing money going into? It sure wasn't consumer credit, and it sure wasn't mortgages. It's just the loan book outside of the NEC loans. Uh, those actually shrank, as we were talking about before. Risk assets have declined. And so what banks were doing was they've been loading up on U.S. Treasuries and agency debt. Basically, the, 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 the least risky, most liquid forms of assets they can get their hands on. So it was about, I think, three quarters of a trillion added mm -hmm. in, those, in those categories, which and that's an absolutely astronomical sum. So going back to our original story here, Jamie Dimon is saying he wouldn't touch treasuries with a 10-foot pole. And we don't know, you know, this data doesn't break it down by bank. We don't know if J.P. Morgan is involved, but we, it's reasonable to assume that they're going along with everybody else because, as you see in the Z1 data, this, this, uh, this sudden, uh, sudden love of U.S. treasuries isn't just this year. It goes back to the fourth quarter of 2018. Banks have been loading up on treasuries and agency debt, the safest, most liquid assets, for over two years now. And it doesn't look like it's stopping anytime soon. In the Z1 data, I believe, in just the third quarter of 2020 alone, um, the banking system added 75 billion, 78 billion, somewhere in a little bit less than 80 billion, which was amongst the highest quarterly increases on record. 
Now, of course, it wasn't the 220 or 200 some billion in the first in the second quarter of, of this year when you know during the financial crisis. But still, even afterward, despite all this money printing, despite the purpose behind QE which is to, to convince the banking system that, hey, everything's fine. You don't need to hold safe, liquid instruments. Go out into the real economy. Go out and lend to do risky activities. The banking system is saying, despite all this QE business, despite this talk about money printing, we want the highest quality. We're going to segue into the, what the outgrowth of that would be, which would mean not inflation. That's what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say is if you want the highest quality, most liquid instruments as a bank, that means you're not extending credit into the broader economy, therefore one which should not expect inflation. In part three, we're going to ask, we're going to discuss whether that is filtering down to the American consumer. We're going to look at the latest survey on consumer inflation expectations. Inflation. Denizens of social media will say it's very high. And if you disagree with them, like I have sometimes, they'll call you a jerk. They've called me a jerk. But what about if we did a survey, a professional survey of American citizens? What would they say? Obviously, they would agree on the latter. I'm a jerk. But what about inflation? Let's ask Jeff Snyder, head of global research for Alhambra Investments. Jeff, our last article for episode 40, part three, it's called Act Two, The Lie Unwinds. And you can find it posted at Alhambra Investments. And it was posted on December 11th. So Act Two, The, uh, the Lie Unwinds. But the date that we're really interested in is May 17th. What happened on that day? That was Act One, right? <laughs> if there's an Act Two, there has to be an Act One. So what was Act One? Act one was Jay Powell going on 60 Minutes and, as I've said repeatedly, lying his ass off. He was really brazen. I mean, it was completely, uh, you know, and I understand why he was doing it because, look, everything was really bad back then, and he wasn't really sure whether or not we, in his mind, Federal Reserve Chairman always think back to 1929. And so they believe that, look, when the chips are down, you do whatever it takes to move everything back in the inflationary direction, including, apparently, you lie if you have to. And the big lie he told that day on 60 Minutes, knowing full well that he would never be challenged by any reporter because they're never challenged on any of these things, he basically said, look, we flooded the world with dollars. We just print it digitally. We create money digitally and we can do it. We'll do it and we're going to continue to do it. We're going to flood the world with dollars, this digital money printing. And he knew that he would set the news media fire and social media would go nuts over this stuff. That's exactly what happened. Because here we had for the first time in history, the Federal Reserve, a top central banker actually saying these words. Look at me. I'm being reckless with the money printer. And he was doing it because we were in a deflationary situation and he a serious deflationary situation, which he agreed needed the, the, the most serious, at least what they had in their toolkit, uh, serious methods to try to get out of it, which was, I got to go on 60 Minutes and lie. So that was act one. It reminds, you know, that whole sequence, it reminds me a little bit about uh, The Sum of All Fears, which was a 2002 American movie of uh, Tom Clancy book of the same, same title. And uh, it starred Bridget Moynihan and uh, Ben Affleck and Morgan Freeman were in it too, but, you know, whatever. The, there was a scene where a rogue Russian general attacked an American aircraft carrier. And you know what the Russian president did? He went on the air on television, and it was rogue, so the Russian president didn't authorize it. He went on the air and he said, yeah, we did it because X, Y, and Z. And the thinking was, and this was the scene, it was better, it was worse to appear to not be in charge. You know, it was, the consequences were worse if you came out there and said, well, we don't really know what's going on. We don't know why this happened. And that's the sense I get from them. They have to put on this face. And you, you've never, you're not a bomb thrower for the people that read your, uh, don't read your articles. You're not a bomb thrower. You don't use that word lightly, the lying. You were very explicit. You were very upset with what he had done. You got it exactly right here because 
monetary policy has no money in it. Instead, it's all about expectations policy. And expectations policy is exactly what you just described. Hey, it's a big show of we're in charge. We've got this situation covered. You don't believe me? Can't you hear the digital printing press in the background going burr, burr, burr? That's what he was saying. He's like, look, we've got this under control. Even though in the middle of May, that was already, you know, a couple months into this massive QE stuff and things weren't really turning around all that well. So, I mean, if you were paying attention, you already knew things weren't going the right way. And that's one of the reasons why Powell was on TV. But in his audience, by and large, were people who were paying close attention because there just aren't that many people who pay close attention. Most people just want to know, hey, what's going on here? And what they see in 60 minutes, and of course, 60 minutes has all the trappings of establishment and authoritativeness. Look, everything's, you know, this is big stuff and the right people and the smart people, you know, the best and brightest in the world. And unchallenged, the guy says, look, we're, we're printing money, there'll be inflation. And like, it's supposed to just believe it. I liked one of the points you made in this article it's that uh, to all appearances, what the Fed was doing was drastic. And you'll see that in the media or podcasts anywhere. What they did was drastic, but the point you make is no, it wasn't drastic. It was the same old, same old. Just the numbers were bigger. It wasn't drastic at all. Let's talk about the salt of the earth. The average person has real responsibilities, can't be following the economic news day to day. They are surveyed by, by the Michigan uh, survey of com American consumers. Uh, we talked about that last week, but there's also another survey done by the Federal Reserve Board of New York. No. Federal Reserve branch of New York, and uh, they've been doing this survey for about seven years of consumers among many various topics, including is the stock market going to go up? And they ask them about inflation. And at the beginning of this week, uh, what day was it? I don't remember. Whatever the beginning of this week was, the 11th or the 12th, they released, on December 11th, they released a short and long-term outlook for inflation expectations. Tell us what you saw. I'm going to pull up a graph of them, all right? Well, first of all, let's go back to Act 1. When In May, 2018, or May 2020, when Jay Powell went on 60 Minutes and the digital money printing, you saw that phrase everywhere. As you, as you pointed out, Emil, it was widely, I mean, it went, I mean, people went crazy with this because, again, that was the whole entire point. And so we saw in these consumer surveys for inflation expectations, especially in the short run, is they they, they bumped up a bit. You know, I think the University of Michigan survey got up as high as 3%, which was the highest in, 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 a, little, in a little bit here, in a little bit over a year, which kind of suggested that, you know, for, if you're Jay Powell, you're thinking, this might have worked. This, was, this seemed to have done well. And as you're pointing, I think this is, you know, the FRBNY survey of inflation, mm -hmm. same kind of thing. You know, you saw this rise in May, 20, uh, May 2020 coinciding with Powell's appearance on 60 Minutes, which was consumers saying, okay, the guy says he's printing money, he's flooding the world with, with cash and dollars and whatever else. We don't know, so must be the case, right? And so people tend to believe when a Fed chairman goes on uh, a, a reputable news program and says he's doing these things, they thought he was doing these things. And as we know from history, right, money printing always leads to inflation. So if there's going to be lots of money printing, there has to be lots of inflation. That's the that's the, the uh, uh, association at the heart of all of this stuff. And yeah, and then so there's another bullet point I list out there. It was August of uh, 2020, and that's when they announced the Federal Reserve that they're going to let inflation run pure, run hot, above 2% for some indefinite period of time. And Yeah, with people not understanding that that was borrowing from the Japanese from four years earlier. <laughs> They're overshooting policy, which didn't work there. But again, the Fed doesn't care, right? The Fed, their audience is to people who don't know that. And they're basically saying, look, we're printing money hand over fist. It's digital. It's brand new. It's great. It's massive. It's in the trillions. And oh, by the way, we don't care about inflation anymore. We're going to let it go as far as it needs to go. So, you know, the, the, the lay person, the, you know, John Q. Public, the person on the street has got to be thinking, well, this, this stuff has got to be really inflationary, except in the data that you're showing or the University of Michigan survey. Not really. Not so much. Right. <laughs> well, and yeah. And even in this one, too, what I'm showing is the uh, New York branch survey. It shows that the three trillion expansion in their balance sheet this year 
uh, got them above their seven-year trend. And the, down, the trend was down, and it's gotten them a little bit. You know, the, se- the three trillion doesn't go as far as one would think. That's the one year ahead. I'm showing the three year ahead now, Jeff. Is there any difference in the three year versus the one year? Yeah, and really that's where it should show up. If the Fed was at all being successful in what it was doing, we would expect, yes, short run inflation expectations to rise, but that's not really what, what the Fed wants. And that's not what we really want either. We want this to become more than just a flash in the pan. We don't want just a sharp burst of inflation and then it goes back down to normal, or which would mean no burst of inflation. We want this stuff to, to become sustainable because we're really not talking about inflation and consumer prices. We're talking about the economic and monetary background behind them, which would be conducive to growth, sustainable growth and acceleration because of a sustained increase in the monetary system. You know, inflationary money leading to positive economic outcomes. And if those inflation expectations go extend beyond the short run, extend beyond the one year horizon, that means that consumers are buying into the story. They're saying, okay, Jay Powell's printing money. It's going to be inflationary. It's going to be good for the, that means the economy start moving again. And we're starting to believe this stuff that it's not just going to flash in the pan, that it's going to extend over our visible horizon into the longer terms. So we would really want to see longer run inflation expectations rise even more than shorter run. And again, you know, outside of the uh, act one short term kind of a boost, it really kind of, it was a little bit of a bump. And then, then, then what? Yeah, it's not worth three trillion in balance sheet expansion. Yeah, I, exactly, That's, and I, I'm glad you point that out because really, it's, it, these numbers are are huge, right? And the, the amount, the, the rate of increase or the the level of increase just this year is you know a trillion and a half or whatever it was. I mean, these are supposed to be huge numbers, and when this is all you got from huge numbers, you're already starting to think, hey, something's not right here. Consumers may not know you know, the nuts and the bolts and the details, you're going back to Lehman Brothers, collateral, all this other stuff, but they sure can see in their own lives that this stuff isn't leading to where, leading to what everybody's told. And in the University of Michigan survey, of course, the inflation expectations recently have been even worse. The one-year inflation expectation in December flat out flopped. It was down to 2.3% again, which is basically where it was in, in, in March and April, among the lowest in the sur- in series history. The longer run expectations from the University of Michigan, the five-year rates, they, got, they only went up a little bit and they stayed up through September. And now they're back down again amongst the lowest in, in the survey's history. When the survey's history isn't new, like FRB and Y stuff. The University of Michigan has been conducting these inflation surveys going back to 1978 or 79, somewhere in there, late 70s. So we're talking about 40 some odd years of inflation, you know, consumer surveys and inflation expectations among the lowest in history, in that entire history, despite three trillion in quote unquote money printing and Jay Powell on 60 Minutes telling everybody world, uh, to around the world that they're flooding the, the system with digital money printing. It, you know, it's just, it, it, it doesn't add up. And, you know, often people tell us that uh, there is inflation. And that's not what we're saying, that there's no inflation. We're just saying that the kind of inflation that exists when an economy is expanding rapidly doesn't seem to be present. And people will say, well, it's not in the government's interest to show it in the numbers because they owe money, more money, if inflation goes up. And that's fair. But what these surveys show is that, you know, the people are told that there's a waterfall of money flowing out of the Federal Reserve. No, well, they're not buying it. At least it's not filtering out into the rest of their economy. Jeff, is there anything that we didn't cover on this article that you wanted to bring up? No, I think, I think that's really the point, is that people may believe what they're seeing on TV, at least in, in terms of the wording, right? Yes, the Fed is money printing because we don't know what else it's doing. The level of bank reserves are rising. But at the same time, we don't see the consequences. We don't see in our we don't see the economy rapidly exp- or in this case rapidly recovering because look let's face it we're already in the recession we're in a serious recession as it is now and people are are saying in consumer in expectations as well as you know other things like we talked about before consumer credit spending all these other indications consumers and businesses are saying okay we don't really know what the Fed does they say they're money printing maybe that's true but. We're sure not seeing the, the, the supposed consequences of it in our daily lives. And that actually makes it even more difficult because you're, 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 you're throwing a wedge between 
causation and consequence, right? Because we're supposed to, we're, we're not able to understand why things are falling apart or why things are not working the way they are because we don't really know what these people are up to. And in getting back to our overall theme of the show, the people who are supposed to know what they all, what, what's going on in the system, they have no idea either, which is why it all gets back to this ridiculous drama about, you know, why does Jay Powell have to go on 60 Minutes and lie? Because he has no idea what happened with Lehman Brothers. It really is that simple. If the Federal Reserve had any money in monetary policy, had any kind of monetary competence, we wouldn't have to go through this expectations crap, which is essentially, in this case, because things are so bad this year, you know, expectations meant the Federal Reserve chairman, for the first time, had to openly lie about what he did on television. Well, Jeff, as I said earlier in the show, this is our 40th episode of the year and final episode of the year. And I just wanted to thank you here publicly for uh, this journey. I've absolutely loved it. Uh, sometimes when the camera is off, I'll get down because I'll think, oh, you know, Regis Philbin would have said it better. And Ryan Seacrest, he's so much more handsome than I am. But overall, I absolutely love it. I can't wait to uh, continue again next year and see where this journey takes us. I'm thrilled to see the enthusiasm in the audience. I don't think you get out there as much on social media and into the YouTube comments and on Twitter as much as I do, but people are really enthusiastic. They're loving what you're sharing with us, Jeff. And as I've told you before in the audience, I believe you've got a unified theory of what's happened over these last 13 years and where we may be going in the future. So I can't wait to do it again uh, next year and uh, I'll take more beauty naps and you know maybe I'll look into how Seacrest cuts his hair and try to improve that way. Yeah, I think one of the things to me, and I, I can't thank you enough, Emil, for taking the time out of your own personal schedule and your own work schedule to, to do this with me, to, to put together this on a weekly basis, which takes quite a bit of effort. You know, and I think that's one of the things, you know, looking forward to next year, one of the things that, that, that's really been a, a positive development from my, own, from my own perspective is that people are asking questions. You know, going back to 2008, uh, you know, there were, were people were willing to, to swallow what, what everybody was saying, you know, central bankers in particular, and hey, they're money printing, whatever. Nowadays, people are a little more skeptical. There's a lot more people thinking, okay, you know, even if they don't believe what I'm saying, if they don't believe what you're saying, Emil, they're, they're at least thinking, well, something's, something's up here. <laughs> we notice that something's wrong and people are starting to move in the direction towards skepticism. Okay, Jay Powell says he's printing money, but is it really? What are these bank reserves? What really goes on in the monetary system? Is it really that easy and simple? There seems to be a whole lot more to the story, and there's a there's a, a level of interest in exploring that story, even if you don't take our word for it. The fact that people are willing to put the time and effort into do, thinking through these things on their own, to me says, let's let's keep going, let's keep pushing this forward, and let's. Let's get people asking questions and becoming skeptical and start thinking about things uh, in, 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 in a more realistic way. I'll talk to you in 2021, Jeff. Okay, Emil, take care. Happy New Year. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas, all that stuff.